You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. On behalf of the United States Institute of Peace, we are very pleased to welcome you to this timely discussion on the peace and security dimensions of cooperation between China and Africa. My name is Lise Grande, and I am the president of USIP, which was established by Congress in 1984 as an independent, nonpartisan national institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and helping resolve violent conflict abroad. As we all know, China is a major player in Africa's peace and security landscape and will almost certainly play an even bigger role in the years ahead. Already, China has contributed to UN peacekeeping forces on the continent, is funding Africa's regional institutions, has extended military cooperation, established a military base, and is active in Africa's arms and technology markets. As a better way of understanding the dynamics of security cooperation on the continent, we'll be reflecting this morning on the outcomes of the recent China-Africa Forum. Our distinguished speakers will help us to examine the significance of the peace and security cooperation commitments contained in the Forum's action plan, and we'll be reflecting together on China's intentions, its policies, and its actions in Africa. The stakes are high. This past year, Africa has experienced a number of coups, continuing instability caused by the threat of violent extremism, and the fallout from a number of ongoing civil conflicts across the continent. We are delighted to host this conversation, and we invite everyone to pose your questions via the chat function on our website. We also welcome you to follow the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag at USIPFOCAC. I'm very pleased to welcome Heather Ashby from USIP's Strategic Stability and Security Office, who will be introducing our speakers and facilitating this morning's discussion. Hi, right. thank you so much, Lise, and thank you to everyone attending. I'm thrilled to introduce our speakers to you this morning. We will begin with Abdul Hakim Ajijola, who chairs the African Union's Cybersecurity Expert Group and advises various governmental and non-governmental committees on cybersecurity across the continent. His work in this ever-evolving field has focused on the implications for peace and development, so it's a great joy to have him here to speak with us today on these intersections. Our second speaker is Dr. Garth LaPere, a professor at the University of Pretoria, who has extensively covered previous uh, FOCAC engagements in his academic writings and will guide us through how peace and security cooperation has evolved through these forums. We will then have 15 minutes for questions and answers. In closing, the Vice President of USIP's Africa Center, Dr. Sani, will offer some reflections on today's discussion. And so we're going to start with a few questions to our panelists uh, after uh, they do their introductions. Uh, over to you, Mr. Ajijola. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me to share my thoughts. Uh, I will focus on the cybersecurity issues that immediately come to mind uh, so that uh, I'll let others focus on some of the other broader policy issues. But let me start by saying that um, we are no longer uh, protecting computers. We're actually protecting society. Uh, this is something that I, I, I have heard from people like Nico Hyponen. And I think it's very important for us to keep this in mind as, as we take these discussions uh, forward. Uh, also, uh, I, I would like to point out that for many of us, we view cybersecurity, for example, as an opportunity for Africa uh, to create wealth and jobs and as a byproduct for governments uh, to generate revenue uh, through taxes. Uh, the African cybersecurity market is estimated at about $2.32 billion, and this was in 2020, and is estimated to grow to about $4.5 billion by 2025. And so there is an opportunity for Africa to become, uh, to make itself a, a cybersecurity profit center, not simply an organizational cost center. Uh, and therefore, there are skills 
must develop. Um, there's an environment we must create to turn some of these threats uh, into opportunities and to turn some of those nations, uh, in, in this case China, uh, some of the threats that they pose to us to try and uh, convert them into uh, certain opportunities. Now, with regards to China-Africa cooperation, especially in, in, in the cyber realm, but like any other um, relationship, you know, there are benefits and challenges. Uh, many have articulated the socioeconomic benefits, uh, of which there are many in other fora. So I would like to look at some of the related challenges and threats. Uh, first of all, we've seen uh, malware in our African supply chains. Uh, there was a case of the Chinese techno brand of phones, um, which apparently, you know, got infected with some kind of malware during uh, its manufacturing process. Again, uh, that's, you know, in China. And we have to understand that uh, the people that buy these kind of low cost smartphones themselves are not people of high uh, financial capacity. And so the, the double tragedy of this was that people who could not afford it had their data stolen using their bandwidth, which is uh, disproportionately expensive, not just across Africa, but to those, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, specific people. But again, uh, in casting aspersions about, you know, any specific um, uh, nation, you know, we must not forget that uh, even high-end smartphones have key components that are made uh, in those nations that do cast these aspersions. And uh, furthermore, uh, experience has shown that we, you know, we cannot uninstall or remove apps from even well-established uh, products. Uh, you know, Samsung has Bixby, uh, Google has, I mean, um, uh, Apple has Siri, uh, you know. Um, so, you know, these things go on and on and on. So it's, it's not really just China that we're looking at from an African perspective, uh, it's other countries. Uh, in addition, uh, we've seen, for example, India blocked, I think back in 2020, about 118, 118 mobile apps, principally from China. And the idea or the excuse was that they, they challenged India's national security and sovereignty. Again, was it, is it actually that or was it because, uh, you know, China and India have an ongoing uh, set of challenges? But it does raise uh, questions about what's coming uh, when we look at the issues of, um, you know, some private conversations at the African Union, videos and documents that seem to have been exfiltrated. Um, there are many questions, but I think the bottom line really is that there are things that Africa and Africans have to do to protect themselves. And so we do need to look at our supply chains. I'm not always sure that outright banning of some of these uh, apps and software is necessarily the, the right way to go. Now, another challenge that we have seen across Africa is the um, expected emergence of digital currencies. Uh, when we look at a government-backed currency such as the digital yuan, uh, it does raise the specter of a challenge to African nations, particularly those who are in charge of finance, uh, those are, who are in charge of setting uh, monetary policy and controlling monetary supply. Because the digital yuan, as a Chinese digital currency, will not answer to African regulators. It will answer to, um, you know, the regulators in China. So the question is, from a national sovereignty point of view, who controls your, 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 your monetary policy and who will control your money supply? Uh, we must not forget, in this particular instance, China has the upper hand. Um, because of political, financial, uh, and economic influences that it has. Africa and it, many of its nations owe substantial debts uh, in terms of, you know, directly to China. Um, China, as you've noted uh, earlier, has um, a lot of investments and there is definitely a trade imbalance. And again, it boils down to this debt. But we must also appreciate that since the year 2000, China has accumulated significant influence over Africa's technology stock. Uh, close to 50%, that is 5-0 of the mobile handset market are Chinese manufactured phones. Um, but more importantly, at least 
70%, that is 7-0 of the mobile network layer across Africa are Chinese. So African uh, you know, nations may find it very difficult to say no to digi uh, China's digital currency. Indeed, uh, in October 2020, uh, the Huawei Mate smartphone was um, launched in South Africa, and it actually has an inbuilt hardware wallet for uh, its digital currency, which would make it, quote unquote, very easy for us to, you know, to slip into. Uh, and then we have another example from the Africa Afrinic. And basically, Afrinic is the body that manages the African IP address system. It manages those resources um, handed down from the global body, the, the ICANN, uh, and manages it on, for the African region. And uh, it, 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 it turned out that um, about 5% of our total stock of IP4 addresses, about 6.2 million addresses valued at $150 million had ostensibly been misappropriated by you know, a single firm in Hong Kong. Excuse me. Um, and, you know, while this misappropriation was clearly, um, you know, aided and abetted by a disgraced Afrinic uh, executive, uh, when the, the new management of Afrinic tried to recover these addresses, uh, this Hong Kong company took them, to, uh, took the organization to court and actually got an a court in, an injunction freezing the organization's assets, thereby not only imperiling Africa's uh, IP address system, but actually the global internet address system. And so this, uh, as, as, uh, as an instance of where something has gone wrong, again, one would argue it wasn't necessarily state policy, but certainly um, that there is an, an inability or a functioning agency in Africa to do something as fundamental as ensuring that African IP addresses remain, uh, you know, in African hands, frankly, is a direct threat to internet freedom and information sovereignty across the continent. <clears throat> and so, unfortunately, you know, the Afrinic IP uh, address debacle uh, is not necessarily an, uh, an isolated event, but certainly is indicative of a broader trend and tendency uh, among African elites to fail to take cyber threats seriously uh, and govern information resources with a high degree of accountability. Now, in terms of, for example, digital currency, the, the digital yuan is not the only currency out there. We've, we know about Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin has, is the distributed currency. It has no owner, it has no center. And again, that goes to the heart of who controls you know, within an African nation, um, money supply, who controls monetary policy. We're seeing uh, uh, the emergence of the Facebook DM. Again, Facebook DM does not answer to any African regulator per se, but answers first and foremost to shape the, you know, Facebook uh, shareholders, and then possibly to regulators in, in California before you even talk of, you know, the, the national regulators. Um, but on the other side, we are seeing uh, efforts, uh, and again, or rather from other neighbors, seeing efforts, um, uh, you know, on the commoditization of broadband, which in of itself is not bad. And I'm referring to projects like Elon Musk's uh, Star Starlink, um, um, Project Juniper, um, sorry, Jeff Bezos, and, you know, OneWeb in the UK, which is actually a, a British, uh, India, now a British Indian consortium. And the question for many of us across Africa is that when our data hits these satellites, it's these quote-unquote foreign satellites, what happens to it? Who controls it? Indeed, who owns it? What are the privacy implications? And where are these uh, things going to be used? Uh, I'd just like to quickly also touch on uh, the use of artificial intelligence and these technologies in the battlefield. Um, there are different philosophies. And for us to sustainably address some of the challenges we are seeing, uh, and that is from a philosophical point of view, uh, we see the West focus more on eliminating false positives, arguably not erring and killing uh, innocents. Whereas we see from China and uh, also from Russia, they tend to focus on eliminating false negatives, and that is not to err in letting potential threats through. And as Africans, it is imperative that you know, our current middle-level national security operatives, civil society, and indeed academia, 
think through what are African philosophies? What are our ethics? What are our imperatives? Because that's the basis for developing the, the requisite policy and strategies. And those um, middle-level national, those middle-level operatives have to appreciate that they are actually the generation that will determine and lay the foundations for those philosophies, ethics, policies, and strategies, and indeed accountability frameworks that are now rooted in the African culture and worldview that future generations of, of African strategists will follow. Very quickly, um, we've also seen uh, in the previous American administration, the Trump administration, something that um, Professor Joseph Nye, uh, Harvard professor emeritus, described as the weaponization of interdependence. And really, uh, I think that uh, African nations must be able to moderate and adapt to the realities of a multipolar world of technology. They need to uh, build proficiency in monitoring and proactively navigating complex and varied economic, social, uh, social commercial, technology, uh, privacy, and indeed connectivity relationships as they relate to cyberspace. We do need to uh, motivate much more research and development and empower uh, you know, Africans to develop indigenous solutions so that we minimize this near total dependency we currently have on single external parties. Uh, else things will not change. Um, you know, and even though with the improved tone from Washington, you know, a lot of those underlying things that are of concern to us are there. Uh, so we need to, as Africans, understand and decide what we want. I think it's also important that African priorities are not vendor-driven. And specifically for those Africans in the audience today, I would pose a few thoughts for you to think of, a few things for you to think about. Who will protect the digital African? If not you and I, then whom? That, for me, is the bottom line. Who is the digital African, frankly? It's uh, the youth, it's our children. And maybe a few of us who uh, have some capacity to use some of these technologies. And we must understand that the, um, the, the you know, the mama that makes uh, sells the fruit by the side of the road, the vulcanizer, um, the street vendor, they're all carrying these phones. They all are able to check their bank statements online. So they are the digital African. And I would propose secondly that we, you consider how we can grow a micro, small, and medium-scale-based cybersecurity solutions economic subsector so that we can empower young Africans with the ability to develop solutions so that they are part of the solution, not part of the problem. And thirdly, it is so important that we ensure that we get our women and youth into IT security and evolve them into power players. Because frankly, no society or economy is going to make significant headway if it does not leverage 50% of our population with our women and another 40% which are our male youth. Uh, so for us to you know, uh, address these challenges, I, I think it's important that we begin to think about some of these ideas. Uh, we begin to articulate ways forward. And I think I'll leave it for there for now. Thank you very much. All right, great. Thank you, Mr. Aji Jola, for those remarks. I just want to remind our attendees today that you can submit questions in the chat box on the USIP webpage. And uh, now, uh, Dr. Le Pair, we welcome your remarks. Yeah, thank you very much. And good afternoon to uh, everybody from South Africa. So I'm going to talk broadly about the peace uh, and security landscape um, China's, China and Africa's peace and security landscape uh, in Africa. And to start with, you know, what is the logic behind um, the interests between the continent of Africa and China? Well, you know, on the one hand, um, there, there are China's wide array of mercantilist interests, its economic assets in Africa, the rising number of Chinese workers and businesses, and crucially, how these may protect how these may be protected. On the other hand, is the big systemic picture, and that is how China wishes to enhance its image as a responsible rising power that is providing global public goods. So, um, you know, 
those are essentially, I think, the, the, the drivers behind this logic are put differently by a good friend of mine, Professor Chris Alden. He digests this into three imperatives, three security imperatives. The first is what he calls the imperative of reputational security, which is all about uh, China's local and global image. The second is the imperative of firm level security which is all about maintaining and protecting its economic and business interests. And then the third is the imperative of citizens' security uh, to guard against rising criminality against uh, its workers and uh, increasingly num increasing numbers of tourists that do come from China to Africa. For that as preliminary remarks as an introduction, let me then highlight uh, what I think are some of the main normative, conceptual, and policy threads that define uh, China's peace and security nexus in Africa. First, to observe that both China and Africa see great benefit in forms of pragmatic cooperation, which is based on a template of peace and security uh, interests that are collaborative, that are comprehensive, that are sustainable. So important to bear in mind that that template is based on those three sort of normative goals of, of collaboration, comprehensiveness, and sustainability. So let me just sort of sketch what I think are the interesting uh, manifestations and characteristics define this template and begin with the July 2019 China-Africa Peace and Security Forum, which was held in Beijing and which was meant essentially to breathe life into the vision and ambition of this template. Now, crucially to note here that the forum derives from, and I want to underscore this, growing institutionalization of China Africa security relations, especially since the establishment of the China-Africa Cooperative Partnership for Peace and Security in 2012. Well, that partnership now is uh, eight years old. And that, and that partnership, the Cooperative Partnership, was established under the auspices of the Forum of China, uh, Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, which is now decades old, probably, uh, not probably, it is the oldest of forums that China has uh, with any region. Now, regarding the 2019 forum, it is interesting to note who attended that forum. It was attended by 100 senior representatives from 50 African countries and the African Union, including 15 defense ministers and chiefs of general staff. So a very high level profile of representatives from the, from the continent matched uh, the Chinese side by equal levels of seniority, uh, including the opening of the forum by President Xi Jinping himself. So what are the articulations then of China's strategic engagement uh, on peace and security? And here I just want to emphasize what I think are the two important normative anchors. And these are building mutuality of interests on the one hand, and developing responsiveness mechanisms uh, to support Africa's still very embryonic and fragile uh, peace and security architecture. Very important to note in this regard here, uh, and also to emphasize this, is China's contribution to seven, seven UN peacekeeping operations and missions in Africa. Um, there are 14 UN peacekeeping missions worldwide, so seven, a full 50% of those are in Africa, where China has the largest number of peacekeepers of all UN permanent members, mindful, of course, that the business of the Security Council, bulk of the business, almost 70% of it, by the way, is taken up with threats uh, to peace and security, which emanate from the African continent.
Now, there are forms of additional support for Africa's peace and security architecture, which extends to three areas. And that is uh, the first, establishing Africa's own standby force for peacekeeping and post-conflict peacebuilding. And then secondly, forming the African Union's mechanism for peace cooperation. And thirdly, setting up the African Center for the study and research on terrorism. So all this activity is funded through China-Africa Peace and Security Fund, uh, for which China made 100 million US dollars available as part of the 2019-2021 uh, Beijing Action Plan of the Forum for China-Africa Cooperation. There's also professional and political exchanges, which is an important component of this peace and security cooperation uh, between the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, and African countries. So yeah, some facts. Between 2019, there were 18 military, 18 military drills, 13, uh, 30 naval port visits, and 300 exchanges and dialogues. Let me also mention that China has its own security firms which are registered to protect its ports, where it has, uh, you know, direct interest, its oil and gas pipelines, as well as working with local police and security forces uh, to protect citizens and businesses. And then there's also, importantly, you know, uh, the problem of combating piracy, which is providing armed maritime escort operations. Then, uh, there are two registers that also support at the bilateral country level and the multilateral, uh, multilateral sub-regional and continental level should be noted. In this regard, China provides extensive support for an array of projects and programs such as combating terrorism, uh, combating religious fundamentalism, drugs, human trafficking, uh, the things that uh, are talked about, cyber challenges, as well as piracy. And then there's also, you know, small arms pro proliferation. However, 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 behind this virtuous circle, there are controversial sales of arms to uh, highly autocratic, often fragile and repressive regimes, which takes place under a number of secrecy, uh, which are nevertheless, I mean, these arms sales programs to countries are nevertheless a highly significant feature of China's military involvement in Africa. Primarily, primarily because Chinese arms industry has become extremely price competitive and increasingly sophisticated compared to uh, the traditional arms supplying rivals, primarily the United States and Russia. Um, according, you know, to the Stockholm uh, International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI, between 2014 and 2019, Africa accounted for 20% of Chinese arms, uh, Chinese arms exports, ranking after Asia and Oceania at 70% and the Middle East at 6%. Well, let me then conclude here. Uh, referring to the Dakar Action Plan. So the Dakar Action Plan was the last action plan that um, uh, evolved out of the Forum for China-Africa Cooperation uh, Ministerial Meeting. It did not take place at summit level um, in Dakar last September. And it came up with this action plan for 2022 to 2024. It has nine programs worth 40 billion, but I just want to highlight two that I think are special interests that sort of inform my conclusion. And the first is that China will deliver a billion, dose, uh, a billion doses of its COVID vaccine to Africa this year. The second is that it will undertake 10 uh, additional expanded projects on peace and security. Uh, in support of the African Peace and Security Architecture. I mentioned these examples uh, by way of conclusion, simply to, to, to suggest that there is a fundamental philosophical 
difference in peace and security matters between Western countries involved in Africa, mainly the U United States and the European Union, compared to, uh, compared to China's. So simply put as a binary here, the orientation of the West is to promote what I'd call a liberal peace in Africa, based on conditionalities of democracy and human rights, while that of China is a non-conditional developmental peace based on growth and stability. And I'd like to include that uh, rather provocative and controversial point. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for your remarks. Uh, now I'll open it up for Q&A. And just to remind our audience that you can ask questions in the chat box on the USIP webpage. Uh, and as those come up, we'll pose them to our panelists. And so I will get it started with two questions to our panelists. Uh, Mr. Aji Jola, technologies enabled with artificial intelligence are becoming more prevalent across the African continent. China and the U.S. are both at the forefront of these developments. What impact do you think such technologies might have on conflicts in the region for good or bad? Um, I think um, the impacts are likely to be profound. Uh, I think where the major challenge for a lot of African, let me not say African nations, African societies will be is in the, the utilization and leveraging of these technologies uh, in an accountable manner. Uh, what we have seen or what we are observing is that uh, honestly, uh, a lot of African nations, and I'm talking about the governments, um, tend to be possibly the more culpable party. And so, and while one is appreciating that there is a need for some of these uh, um, uh, norms, uh, whether it's norms in cyberspace, uh, norms on, 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 on the utilization of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, I, I, I think that um, African governments themselves uh, have a long way to go, not all, but quite a few in terms of, um, you know, cleaning up their acting in terms of being accountable to those that they govern and they govern. Uh, the second challenge I see um, is that many times AI systems might be developed in one environment for a certain purpose and then repurposed, um, you know, in a different environment. And so the, the training data that might be used in California or, or, or in China um, might be very, very different. Uh, and, and, and for example, uh, we, we've read about where um, certain AI systems that are used to identify people have more difficulty identifying people with darker skin color. So, you know, if you bring these AI systems from these other environments, um, who then is ultimately responsible if they misidentify or in some other manner malfunction. And so I, I, I think there are a lot of areas for us to not only be concerned about, but to begin to address, uh, you know, in terms of thinking things through um, properly. I hope that helps. Yes, that definitely helps. Thank you. Uh, Dr. LePere, can you tell us a little bit more about the China-Africa Forum on Peace and Security held in 2019, and what do you think we might expect at the second iteration of this forum later this year? Thomas Ashby, uh, in my remarks, you know, I essentially stressed uh, the contours and the outcomes of that forum. And it really pulls on the, uh, the partnership, the peace and security partnership, part of partnership that was put in place uh, in 2012. What is important to note here is that, you know, the broad sequencing, the uh, gender of activities, the funding that is made available, the modalities of support beyond military uh, engagement, you know, 
these are framed by uh, the Forum for China-Africa Cooperation established in 2000. And this is a forum that takes place as a triennial forum, forum that alternates between China and an African country. And what I see really is a, is a maturation, if you will, uh, in, um, in, in striving for greater symmetry uh, between the contributions and the inputs of, 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 of the African partners uh, on the one hand, so that's the bilateral uh, dimension. And important to note here that China, since, um, uh, shall we say, you know, the uh, um, around 2000 establishment of the Forum for China-Africa uh, Cooperation, now has official bilateral relations with 50 countries, uh, 53 countries actually. There's only one that's still retained. Uh, official relations with and that is Swatini, Swaziland. So China has great electoral chemistry with countries uh, developed over the life of this FOCAC process. But I would call that the first generation engagement. Usually the second generation engagement is at the sub-regional, you know, there are five uh, sub-regional or what, what's called regional economic communities in the African Union. There is a growing maturation in China's engagement and sensitivity to how this, uh, the regional economic communities work in terms of their peace uh, and security interests and challenges, as well as broadly the continental agenda as defined by the African peace and security architecture. So the foundation of the 2019 forum uh, really anticipates, you know, growth, uh, you know, identifying further areas such as uh, such as what uh, I've talked about uh, around cybersecurity, but also, you know, the range of other things that I mentioned, uh, combating terrorism, the low intensity conflicts, you know, the problems of of, of piracy, etc., uh, etc. Et so, um, uh, what is important here is that China is um, increasingly being drawn into a vortex of direct um, engagement on peace and security matters that de facto were, has caused it to abandon the non-interference principle. That was sort of a sacrosanct principle of China's engagement in Africa, uh, you know, I mean, you can go back to Chuan Lai's, you know, visit in the in the 1960s, um, and his his his, his uh, you know enunciation of eight principles that would govern uh, the China uh, Africa uh, interface. So, the increasing involvement in terms of the principles that I've mentioned, uh, the logics that I've mentioned, you know, uh, protecting its its, its, its interest in Africa, a highly unstable environment, uh, as well as at the multilateral level, the, the level of the Union and, and, the, and the Security Council being seen to be directly contributing to global peace and security with a focus on Africa uh, as the major concern in the UN uh, Peace and Security Council. So I think, you know, there is there, there's a certain momentum, there's a certain, you know, uh, very constructive engagement where the voices of African countries increasingly find, find expression in how Africa then responds um, to, to protecting its own interests and the extent to which there is this kind of mutuality in protecting those interests, but also enhancing stability and growth in Africa. All right, great, thank you. And I just wanna remind the audience that you can ask questions in the chat box on the USIP webpage. And so we had a few questions come in. Uh, the first one uh, relates to a point that you made, uh, Mr. Aji Jola, is it possible that the Hong Kong company that you mentioned is the front of a Chinese company? Uh, in other words, are any decision makers worried about any ulterior motives from China in controlling connectivity in Africa? 
Um, I, I, th I think the, <clears throat> the truth from my perspective is that we, we don't know. Um, I mean, the, the chief executive, the, the, the primary driver of the company seems to be, um, now I, I, I can't remember, is he from mainland China or a, a native of Hong Kong? But, um, you know, as, as, uh, from the African perspective, generally speaking, it's, it's a Chinese company as, as far as we are concerned. Um, are there any <clears throat> deeper motives other than uh, greed? Um, we don't know. Um, or certainly, I don't know. Uh, so it would be very, it, it would be very difficult for me to say. But I think, um, given things that we've seen at times, um, one one would not be unduly surprised to find out that there were some other deeper connections. However, the the the, the and I'm sorry, I'm trying to give different sides of this 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 perspective. Um, many of the uh, misallocated or misappropriated uh, IP addresses were actually <clears throat> sold on to people who needed IP addresses that were outside of China, especially mainland China, that used them for, you know, to host pornographic websites, gambling websites, and things that uh, arguably the Communist Party of, of China itself would, uh, or at least publicly frowns at. And I, I and and so, you know, does that mean that there is no relationship? I, I really can't say. But I, I would like to just quickly build on something um, that I, I heard from uh, Professor Garth. Um, one of the areas I think, um, and it, it's, a, it's a global South problem, it's not just an African problem, but it, it's to do with the nature of the agreements we have with nations like China in various sectors. Um, and I, I say this as an African, and we're talking about Africa, it seems sometimes we have difficulty in negotiating fair and mutually beneficial agreements. Um, often when you see, especially the agreement templates that Africans adopt, um, they, don't, they don't always seem to have had the requisite depth of thought um, is it because the Africans are in a hurry? Is it because sometimes we feel a little desperate? Um, is it because we feel the other side may have <clears throat> uh, advantages over us? Um, I'm not quite sure why, but like I said, I, I think the nature of some of the agreements, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, as, as they say, there's no free lunch. And so when somebody wants to give you something, um, you know, that's too good to be true sometimes, you do have to wonder. Thank you. Hi, great. Our next question is for Dr. LePere. Uh, Professor LePere, uh, what is China's role in fighting or contributing to piracy in African waters? Um, well, I, I, th I think quite significant, um, again, you know, going back to uh, what I said about the de facto abandonment of the non-interference principle. And um, there is an example in the Gulf of Aden, you know, of the Horn of Africa, which was a hotbed for, um, you know, piracy activity, where China's, China's frigates became part of a multilateral naval force, which included the European Union and the United States in combating piracy. So I think that was a very significant uh, move by China to become engaged in a multilateral initiative, a multilateral effort uh, in combating piracy uh, in an area that was uh, very difficult to please, by the way. Uh, you know, given the, the wide expanse of the uh, maritime frontier there, uh, the difficulty of, you know, policing uh, that particular area. And, you know, I think the joint uh, initiative, the endeavor, the multilateral endeavor with China being part of this made a huge difference in sort of uh, entirely combating it but uh, making major inroads into uh, dealing with the problem of piracy in the high seas of the Gulf of Aden and uh, of the Horn of Africa. 
All right, thank you. And so this question is to both of our speakers. Is there an African government or government that stands out in navigating, even exploiting Chinese US tensions particularly well? And are there methods applicable to other African countries? Um, I don't know, uh, not as far as I know. Uh, I would like to touch on the issue of piracy, if you don't mind, for just a second. And, and, and maybe, uh, again, Professor Lepere might be in a better position to answer this in terms of what is it that we consider as piracy? Um, you know, especially related, for example, to the theft through overfishing of African maritime resources, which is what we see a lot of uh, in, in the West African uh, coastal area. Um, and a lot of this overfishing, though some of it is by European uh, trawlers, uh, a lot are from, from, from the Far East. And then just again, maybe, uh, sorry, uh, Professor Lepere, maybe this, this is something you can also help us shed a little more light on. Uh, we, we recently uh, heard about the um, hack um, and the declaration of force majeure by the, is it Transnet uh, that controls the four, four of South Africa's ports, especially the port in Durban and the uh, related South African pipelines. Um, the South African authorities, uh, to the best of my knowledge, never really attributed the source of that hack. And there, are, there has been some speculation that, it, it, you know, the, the, the source has, it has come from the East. And I, I'd be very curious, uh, sorry, I'm putting, uh, an audience has just to find out if uh, Professor Lepere has any thoughts on piracy and, and the transnet hack. Thank you. Yeah, I, I have to, I have to plead ignorance on that one, uh, Abdullah Kim. I, I really don't know. Uh, I, I've, I I read about it in the news okay. that there was an uh, that there was an investigation, and it was not only the East. Eh? I, I, there was speculation. Okay. It was really subject to sort of, uh, you know, uh, speculative interpretation. Uh, first, we heard it was from the East, and then, you know, we heard it, it could be, uh, you know, via a sort of Indian mafia in South Africa. Okay. Uh, and, and then, and then we, we heard that, you know, it was the Indian mafia working with uh, the, the criminal underworld of African <laughs> countries. Uh, you know, to exploit the weak underbelly uh, uh, of Transnet. It, you know, you, you're probably in a better position to, to, to tell us that, you know, the, the uh, ability to, of, of cybercrime in countries such as South Africa uh, were very weak, weak type posts or back posts in my view. Um, you know, it, 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 there are uh, national interest threats that I think our intelligence is not capable of providing early warning mechanisms of. Primarily, you know, Abdullah Kim, because of the 10 years of, you know, egregious and pathological state capture of security agencies and our former president. Uh, there's been a broad institutional decay, particularly in intelligence services, particularly in the SSA, the State Security Agency, which has now migrated into the office of the president uh, so that you have direct oversight. But, you know, the, the decay and the rot is widespread across intelligence agencies because there are operatives that still work in there. And in a very transactional way, by the way, uh, Abdullah Kim, able to sell state secrets, you know, uh, this criminal underworld. Um, coming coming to this question on American-US uh, tensions. It's a complex one, eh? But I think that um, there's been a retrenchment of American military interests. Um, the United, United States has a military presence in Africa by way of AFRICOM, right? I mean, the United States has this architecture of high command spread across the world. Uh, and in Africa, it's called AFRICOM, the African Command. And there is quite a substantial military presence in uh, Djibouti, one of Africa. Um, 
But the African Union, I think, has taken a very direct uh, principal position that unless external partners can support the broad architecture of peace and security beyond you know, direct military intervention uh, and, and, you know, protecting country interests, protecting American interests uh, in the U.S., uh, in Africa by way of military engagement, that beyond that, uh, you know, the, the African Union will be rather wary of exploiting differences and tensions between China and the United States that do not enhance the broad agenda of the Constitutive Act of the African Union and the, and the peace and security agenda. So I, I um, you know, I mean, a big military presence, so do the French. The European uh, Union also has, uh, you know, its, its, uh, you know, its, its, its own uh, military and, and peace and security uh, uh, kind of frameworks. Um, but I do not see these as being in direct competition with China per se. Um, I think the, through the African Union and what I mentioned as the second generation of you know, uh, collaboration beyond the bilateral at the level of the African Union, the African Union has now created a forum, a multilateral forum for peace and security cooperation with the United States, China, uh, as well as individual countries of the European Union, France, Britain, uh, uh, primarily, as well as the European Union as a player, uh, form, uh, form part of a peace and security dialogue. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think it's quite important to note that you know, um, the African Union has now been placed what is called the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Which is quite an important development. Uh, all countries have now signed on to the uh, AFCFTA, as it is called. Uh, the majority of countries have now ratified the agreement uh, to make Africa the largest free trade agree free trade area uh, in terms of the number of countries in the world. And this is really an invitation for uh, all the external partners to support you know, the integration impulses that come with the AFCFTA. A uh, great opportunity for the United States, for China, for all the external partners to help to drive a different sort of, you know, trade and development agenda, uh, which of course, you know, has to be informed by the peace and security environment where all these countries play some role, uh, for better or for worse, where China has become really a major player. So uh, the long and the short answer is that, especially during the presidency of Donald Trump, especially during Trump, great retrenchment of interest by the United States in Africa. Uh, there was sort of the U, was the American uh, Africa presidential summit. I don't think that has taken place since the days of Bill Clinton. Uh, yeah, I don't think that that summit has been convened since then. So broadly, I mean, the point to be made is that, you know, trade cooperation, peace and security interests by the United States and the European Union uh, in Africa have declined quite substantially. And China then has taken advantage, you know, of those strategic spaces uh, left by the United States and the uh, European Union make its presence felt in ways that has not happened in the last 10 to 15 years. All right, great. Thank you to both of our panelists today for their great remarks, as well as the answers to the questions that came in through the chat. Uh, as we're concluding the event, I will turn over to Dr. Joseph Sani, the Vice President of the Africa Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace for closing remarks. Thank you, Dr. Ashby, and thank you for moderating the conversation. Uh, this has been an excellent conversation. Generally, uh, when we discuss China, we often bring in a Washington perspective, uh, which doesn't reflect 
the complete picture and the complex reality on the ground, uh, unfortunately, uh, leads to misguided policies. So the focus on hearing African perspective is so critical. So I want to thank our panelists for enriching our understanding today. Part of taking an on-the-ground perspective uh, is realizing that every African country will have a relationship with China. After all, China is the second largest economy in the world and a very assertive player. So we have heard today that China is increasing its influence on the continent. So how do we work to see that China presence is more constructive than destructive? I think one of the missing links in this conversation of doing FOCAT was the effective and inclusive governance as a key driver for security. Uh, Liz, in her remark this morning, mentioned the series of coup d'etat. And Professor Gad, you also raised the issue of security in your remarks, as my brother Abdul Hakim. So in fact, the series of coup d'etat and the turmoil that has ensued in some countries are a potent reminder that effective and inclusive governance matters to peace and stability. The center of gravity of a peaceful and safe Africa lies in government's ability to govern effectively and deliver on citizen expectations for livelihoods, rights, and freedom. So effective and inclusive governance as a key driver of security must be of ultimate uh, priority and importance. But for China, this poses a serious dilemma. How to stay true to the non-interference policy while supporting effective, inclusive governance in every country, right, in Africa. So the governance challenge and China's role or non-intervention lead to what I will consider a vicious cycle for African countries and as Professor Gad, you mentioned, you touch on the vicious circle uh, of security. But I look at it as from a governance lens, because in fact, that vicious circle you mentioned derived from a mercantilistic approach that China has taken. Some may call it transactional, because in a situation of a fragile state, country with poor governance, leaders will look to China for their political survival. So China engagement in this case may then perpetuate poor governance as authoritarian leaders and elite in these countries find in China a reliable source of aid and foreign direct investment. And as you mentioned, an underwriter of the political survival strategy so the unconditional money from China weakens the impetus for necessary government reform efforts. This in turn contains an added risk for proxy war between China and other foreign country in the scramble for resource and influence, resulting in further destabilization of fragile state, particularly those bordering in this case the Gulf of Guinea, or the Gulf of Aden, in this case as well. So I think the vicious cycle you mentioned, and we have discussed here, whether from a cyber security or economy, is the number one challenge in China relationship with African countries. I may go in on uh, considering other examples, such as Ethiopia now, where we see uh, a great deal, uh, a great deal is at stake for Ethiopia, for Ethiopia, but also for China, where China has invested billions in Ethiopia. But China has also sided steadfastly with the government of Ethiopia, while the U.S. has uh, increased the pressure and trying to bring parties together. So, and the African Union. And African countries that are trying to end this conflict should have different expectations of China. 
the EU should expect of China that it uses its influence to bring responsible parties together. So we must not forget that Africans don't want to see the US acting to score points against China in Africa, but they don't also want to see China acting to score points against the US in Africa either. Conversation like the one we are having now, I hope, will help avoid the looming dangerous zero-sum game between major powers that may end up doing more harm to the security of Africa and Africans. So I want to leave it here by, again, thanking all our panelists for the enlightening remarks and also to our audience for their questions. Over to you, Heather. All right, thank you. This concludes our discussion today. Please feel free to go on Twitter and use the hashtag that Lise uh, mentioned earlier uh, during the discussion. And we look forward to holding many more discussions in the future addressing similar topics. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Music